This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers, and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at linode.com slash rubyrogues. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another My Ruby Story. This week, we're talking to Mike Gehard. Mike, you want to say hi? Hello, everyone. Now, um, I'm looking up which episode you were on because I didn't do that before. Um, do you want to just uh, remind people who you are and what you've been up to these days? Yeah, my name is Mike Gayhart. I live in Boulder, Colorado. I currently work for Pivotal, working on what we call the Platform Acceleration Lab. So we go out and train people on how to use Cloud Foundry, which is our platform as a service offering. Ah, uh, gotcha. Yeah, I've, I remember, I, I think it was 2008, I went to RubyConf, and I think they did a, a tour of a bunch of companies and made it out to their office in San Francisco. And then... Yeah. And then uh, Pivotal got acquired by EMC Corporation, which later yep. got acquired by Dell, I think. Yep. Following the, the chain correctly. So, yeah, so you work for up the chain all the way to Dell. That That's interesting. What, what was the acquisition process like there for, for you folks? Um, I was actually at Living Social um, when Pivotal got acquired. And I came back after the acquisition. So, wow. Um, yeah, I didn't know exactly what it looked like. Um, most people are still here, so I guess that's a good thing. Yeah. And um, the Dell acquisition was pretty far removed from us. It didn't really affect us all that much um, because EMC had gotten acquired. So the only thing that changed now is we get to see Michael Dell hang out at like our town halls and things like that. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. And uh, if I remember right, um, Pivotal has an office out in Cal- or Colorado as well, don't they? Yep. Yep. We have an office, actually two offices in Colorado, one in Denver and one in Boulder. Boulder's the one that I work out of. Yeah. I think I've been to the one in Boulder because I think I went to a Ruby meetup out there one time. Oh. So anyway, um, it's always fun to just kind of reminisce back in the day, you know, and because Pivotal's been around in the Ruby community for quite a long time. Yeah. I mean, the company I think was started in the late 90s. So our, our CEO, Rob Mee, yeah, Rob was one of the kind of original folks that hung out in the early Agile community. So we adopted, the company adopted XP pretty early on, like late 90s, I think is when the company was started, was taking that into other companies and showing people how to do XP. Oh, nice. So, uh, yeah. So were you at Pivotal before you were at Living Social or did you come in after after all that? I was at Pivotal before Living Social. So I started at Pivotal in 2010 when they opened up the Boulder office. Uh-huh. I was here for about a year and a half. I went to Living Social when Chad Fowler reached out from the internet and pulled me away to run an engineering group here in Boulder. I got back to Pivotal about 10 or 11 months later. Um, I actually am back for the second time. I came back uh, 
like late September, I was at an early stage startup for a while. So kind of back and forth in and out of Pivotal. Gotcha. Well, we're going to kind of capture your story. We're going to back way up, but it's always interesting to just kind of hear, you know, the, the process and, you know, where people move to and from. And it's also fun to talk to people that have worked for the same company, in your case, off and on for a number of years. It seems like a lot of people kind of just hop around jobs. You know, they find something they like and then they get bored there and move somewhere else. Yeah. So, uh, but, but yeah, let's back way up and talk about how you got into programming in the first place. That's an interesting story. So I've had a computer probably since I was 10 or 11. So my first computer was a Commodore 64. So, you know, punching, punching five and a quarter floppy drives on both sides to double the <laughs> capacity and whatnot. Um, for those of you that actually know what a five and a quarter inch floppy drive looks like. And I went and got a, ma- or a bachelor's in chemical engineering, actually. So I did engineering for my undergraduate. But as part of that, still had programming classes. So we were writing C++ back then as part of our curriculum. So I was still kind of in and out of the computer lab and as an undergraduate. And then I graduated with that degree, went to work for a petrochemical refining research company and got into computers pretty hardcore there. So I was working with a group that was, so this was uh, mid to late 90s, that was collecting all of our research data into databases. And then we'd run reports and pull it out as researchers. And I was like, oh, these computer things are kind of cool. Maybe I should go do this. (laughs) Nice. Went back to school, started working on a master's in software engineering at night. And then right about, was it 90, probably 98, right as the first dot-com boom was getting ready to spin up, um, I left the petrochemical refining company and chemical engineering behind me and went to work for a a consulting company in Chicago doing, uh, what was I doing? I was running C++ back then. It was a big order management system. So I was doing that for a while back in Chicago, working on my master's degree at night. Um, And that's how I got into programming and I've never really looked back. Gotcha. So you you talk about working on the master's degree. Did you finish the master's degree? I did finish the master's degree. It took me probably five years going part-time at night um, to finish my master's degree. And while I was doing that, I was teaching um, part-time at the university that I got my master's degree at. Um, Worked for a bunch of startups. You know, I was working for a startup about 99, 2000, uh, maybe 2000. Walked in and uh, 45 minutes later, 75% of the tech staff and half the company was gone as the, you know, the first dot-com bubble exploded in my face. Yeah, it was really fascinating. Nobody had any idea it was coming and it was like, hey, we're closing the doors. Here's a box. (laughs) Holy cow. Yeah. They actually asked me to stay on, you know, kind of one of the last people to turn the lights out is, you know, turn the lights out, please, when you leave. And I was like, no, I'm going to not do that. I didn't want to get stuck doing that stuff. Right. So I'm curious, having been on kind of both sides of the thing, you know, where it's um, on one hand, you've uh, you've been the non-programming person, you know, the chemical engineer that, oh, this computer thing's cool. And then you've also been on the other end where you got a master's degree in computer science. This is something that I like to ask people about, but you've, I, I feel like you've seen both sides of it. So what is your take on uh, the state of computer science uh, education? That's an interesting question. So I'll add another wrinkle to that. I was actually the first instructor of a G school here in Boulder. So um, I've also taught one of the developer boot camp classes. So I have an interesting take on kind of the current state. 
wearing all of those hats, I feel like computer science is a good thing to have, but also watching many of my students from G school, from a boot camp, a six month boot camp, mm-hmm. um, succeed, you know, very well. So we hired one of my students, Pivotal, hired out of the boot camp after six months. A couple of other folks I still keep in touch with that are, you know, move their way up the chains at startups and whatnot. So I think it's not absolutely necessary. And I think the benefits you get from a computer science degree and kind of any engineering degree is the ability to think critically, which is really what we do. You know, we think critically about a problem. We break it down into reproducible steps. We teach the computer how to do those steps. And then we move on to the next problem. And I think that's, that's what you get. You know, what I see a lot of people with computer science degrees, they get that thinking. The algorithm stuff and the operating system stuff is, is good. Like the fact that I understand how a network works all the way down to the TCP IP level right. is useful to me. But do you have to have that? No, not really. I agree. What the thing that I find is that a lot of the people that I talk about that are kind of the 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 big thought thinkers, the the people who you know, we, we see them talk about technology in ways that that a lot of the rest of us don't think about have some kind of computer science background typically. Not always. A lot of times they have some hard won, you know, knowledge that they've gone and earned on their own. But mm-hmm. a lot of times they do. And so they have that theoretical background and the training of Here's how you go and learn more stuff about this stuff. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, I was counting the other day of the number of programming languages that I've put into production. And I think it was almost a dozen. Something like that. More than six, but less than 12. And it really <laughs> it really boils down to that ability to be, I don't know, I don't know how to do this but I know the steps I want to do. And from there you can piece it together off the internet. Right. You know, we, so the small startup I just left, we put Scala into production and none of us had written production Scala. Um, And it was literally like, how do we get up the curves as fast as we can on this language after doing, you know, a month and a half of analysis of what language did we want? Because we were writing a loan underwriting platform Uh and we knew we wanted type safety. We knew, we knew we wanted, you know, the, some of the securities that Scala gave us and it was a Ruby shop before that, but we decided, no, we're going to do this. We're going to come up the curve on this language because we know there are going to be benefits. And the three of us, you know, three senior engineers, it took us two months to get up the curve on Scala. We're like, yep, we can write production code using this language. Yep. That makes sense. And I don't want to discourage anybody, you know, who's out there and, you know, whoa, so I can't go and do these kinds of things without a computer science degree. Cause that really isn't the case either. But, um, it, it, it's a little bit more automatic in my opinion when, when you're at the school and they're telling you where to go next. Yeah. Yeah. It becomes, it becomes easier. I mean, I'm relatively self-taught. I went back and got a master's in software engineering because I wanted to understand the discipline. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't feel like I needed it. But for me personally, the way I learn best is I'm going to go, you know, go deep on this. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, I'll take a semester of operating systems and a semester of networks and a semester of, you know, computer hardware. Um, and I made that choice. That's because that, that's the way I learn best. But yeah, to your point, you don't need it if you can learn other ways. I think the key and all the people that I've mentored or taught is you have to figure out how you learn best yeah. and then just go and leverage that going forward. Yeah. I have a course on finding a job and the last module is how to learn and what to, how to know what to learn. 
And that's really what it comes down to is, A, why do you want to learn it? And then what is it that you have to learn to get what you want? And then the other part of it is, okay, how do you learn it? And how do you know if you've learned it well enough? And yeah, I those mean, those are all thorny issues. But at the same time, if you really get how you work, it makes it it makes that work. It makes it make sense. Yeah. And I, I mean, I know that I, like for me to learn a new language, I have to go build something. Yeah. So the way I learned Rails is I was um, I partnered up with a friend of mine and we started a business together doing it was like the couchsurfing dot com for surfboards. Mm-hmm. It's called Global Quiver. And he's like, hey, we're going to build this website. And I was like, cool, what are we going to build? And he's like, I don't know, pick a language. And I was like, oh, Rails is kind of cool. So we just started building the business. And I was building software using Rails. And it's like, oh, how, I, I know I've done this in C++ or Java before. How do I do this in Rails? Right. Um, and that's, you know, that's the way I taught myself Rails. So, you skipped yeah. ahead. Are you oh, sure? sorry. No, I, I, you know, I fully intended to ask how you got into Ruby. Is that, is that your story then? Is that how you got into Ruby? That's how I got into Ruby. Yeah, I had uh, I had never really seen. I didn't even know the language existed until a friend of mine's like, "Hey, it's, here's this Ruby thing." And I was living in the mountains. I was living in Vale at this point in time, so I didn't have access to a ton of user groups and things like that. Um, but that's how I got into Ruby and Rails. Oh, Vale is gorgeous! Holy cow! Go drive, go drive that highway, I seventy sometime. Oh, anyway, <laughs> um, so uh, so yeah, so. It's funny because I'm kind of the same way, you know. I got I have a computer engineering degree, and I had a problem I had to solve at work, and so the company was using Ruby on Rails, and we wound up building something in Rails. That's how I got into it too. Yeah, and I find that that's the case with a lot of folks, and you know, those folks weren't genius Ruby coders beforehand. It was just okay. I'm going to go bang on this until until something falls out that makes sense. And that's I think that's the great part of Rails is it doesn't take a lot of banging yeah. to get something useful to fall out the other end. Um, and it's funny as, I mean, I really struggled with knowing Ruby the language and where, where Rails came in. So I think, I can't remember what method call it was, but I didn't know that that was a Ruby method call for like a year and a half into my Ruby career. I was just like, oh, I'd always been programming in Rails. And then I went to write some Ruby scripts. And I was like, what do you mean this this method doesn't exist here? Because it had been being tacked on by active support. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a pretty common experience for people too in the Ruby community at large is they get in with Rails and then, yeah, they figure out that that thing that they've been doing forever that just feels so natural is, oh, that was written to support Rails, not the other way around. Yeah, that's that's what I love about the language. I mean, for so long you can you can bang out things pretty quickly and get things really useful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, what have you done in the Ruby community that you're particularly proud of? Not a whole lot. I've kind of been a journeyman Ruby programmer my whole career. Um, I you know I, I used to submit pull requests to Gem. So the one of the things I loved doing was as a, you know, at Pivotal, I was a consultant for a, while, a long time. Uh-huh. And, you know, we'd solve the same 12 problems over and over and over again for customers. So one of the things I loved to do when I was programming Ruby was as I was solving problems, if I thought I might come back and have to solve this problem later, like I think it was a cucumber thing. I wrote a blog post on it. I was like, I'm going to have to do this again. So I might as well put some instructions right here where I know where they're at for later. And then, uh, you know, I would do that a ton so blogging, you know, little blogging, little solutions. And then I'd love to, one of the things that the other things I love to do is submit small pull requests. 
So, oh, your docs are off or they don't make sense or, ooh, here's a little thing that I want to do. Um, so, I, you know, I would try to give back in that way um, mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, a lot of people you talk to is like, oh, I wrote this gem for this thing. And I just never, never wandered down that path and I don't know why. I've only done the, I wrote a gem for this thing like once or twice, but yeah, it's, it's extremely valuable to have somebody that will go in though and correct your docs and things like that. Um, I'll tell you, if you ever want to do that on any of the projects I'm working on, you are welcome because <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a ton of work. And yeah, I mean, if, if you're in it to get recognized and, you know, glory or whatever, you know, however you measure success. And that's part of it is writing the code, you know, the definitive way of doing X, Y, and Z, then yeah, you're going to have to go invent your own library. But mm-hmm. there is so much value in what you just described that we sometimes discount, you know, because we don't recognize those people. And yet that's so, so valuable to the people that are going to use the library and to the people who are trying to help people use the library. Yeah. I think as a, a gem author, as you point out, this is the definitive way to do this. And it all makes complete sense in their head mm-hmm. because they wrote it. And then someone like the second, third person comes in and just doesn't get it. Yeah. And, you know, to have that person bring their insight, be like, hey, if you just change these four sentences in the documentation, it would make sense to me. And if you get enough people doing that, you now have enough breadth of, of experience or lack of experience where the docs make sense to a lot more, a lot broader range of, of individuals. Yeah, well, and the other part of that is sometimes I write the gem for my specific use case. And so you mentioned small mm-hmm. pull requests. It's like, you know what, if, if you add just this little extra thing to the API, then it handles my use case too. And that's also really helpful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's that you've got this narrow view of the world and that's sometimes good, but it doesn't make necessarily make good for everybody. Yep, absolutely. So what are you working on these days? So language-wise, I'm really liking a language called Kotlin. So Pivotal, as it's grown up, we deal with a lot of Fortune 500 companies now, obviously trying to sell enterprise software. Um, a lot of Java shops, tons of Java shops. I was and say, <laughs> Kotlin looks a lot like Java. It does, and a lot like Ruby. Yeah. It's, um, it's a fascinating language. So Java, you know, statically typed, which I really like. Having put Scala into production, the promise of Scala was always, oh, it's a better Java. And I'm like, yeah, it's a better Java with a really complicated type system. And if you're not used to that, it's, you know, it can be a barrier. Whereas Kotlin has taken this other approach where Scala is, you know, someone's PhD thesis. Martin Ordersky, the man who wrote the language, I think it was his PhD thesis on type systems and a bunch of other people's PhDs on type systems. A great language. Kotlin is, comes more from like the Go aspect of an engineering language. Mm-hmm. Like I have some problems I need to solve and I don't want to write these in Java. So I'm going to, so the folks at JetBrains, the people that write IntelliJ, there's my little plug for IntelliJ, wrote this language so they could rewrite their IDE and be more productive. And the language just has these really nice productivity boosters in it, like extension methods. So, you know, we're used to monkey patching things in Ruby. Well, in Kotlin, I can write an extension method on list. I don't have the source code for list, but I can write an extension method. But because it's statically typed, I don't get that problem of, oh, where did this method come from? In Kotlin, I have to specifically include the code that brings that method with it. Mm -hmm. And only in those files do I get 
that method. Unlike in Ruby, when I once I monkey patch something, everybody and their brother and their sister gets that code and it can cause some problems. Yeah. Uh, so it's little things like that that have, you know, that joy of Ruby, but also the static typing and the JVM and kind of all the other, and the whole Java ecosystem. I mean, hundreds of thousands of libraries of doing things for long periods of time. Um, so that's the big language I'm writing now. I'm always dabbling in Haskell or Pure Script or something like that to keep my functional programming chops up to date. I really have started to change the way I write software, more functional style these days and then mix in some objects. So I've also been dabbling in that, um, still bouncing in another Ruby community. It's always fun to see what's going on over there. I've been interesting watching the talks of static typing into Ruby and what that's going to do to the language. Um, and then really like the other big thing, like non-language specific is trying to fight the microservices marketing machine. Um, <laughs> giving some talks on well-structured monoliths. So DHH and I agree on probably only one thing in this world is well-structured monoliths are, are a good idea. Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. You <laughs> came on the show and talked to us about migrating a monolith to microservices. I did. So are, did. are you going back on that? I am not. I am, I am saying microservices become an implementation detail. So... One of the reasons, if you, you go back, you can go back to that episode and kind of listen to it. But the, the big one is we want highly cohesive, loosely coupled software. And we think mm -hmm. the only way we can get that is microservices. And if you write a monolith, you can actually write the monolith in a specific way such that microservices are, are almost automatic. Where it's like, oh, I have this, this thing. I'm just going to put it on an H, in an HTTP server and away I go. Um, so not against microservices. I, I firmly believe that for some people, microservices are the optimal, optimal com software architecture. What I'm trying to reel people back from the edge on is, hey, we need to start with microservices first. The only way to do microservices is to do them first. And um, I'm not necessarily convinced of that. That makes sense. It's funny because uh, <laughs> what was it was my second or third full-time programming job, you know, because I jumped, you know, the first three years of my career to a different place every year. And uh, we built this huge monolith that was so tightly coupled. And so yeah. what did we do? We went and rewrote everything as microservices. Everything. Everything. And, and that caused a whole different set of problems. So, yeah, I, I like the measured approach because it, it makes sense for a lot of things. And then it's like, yeah, th this stuff has to happen over here. And it makes a ton of sense to just put it into its own service. Totally. Yeah. There's a guy named Simon Brown who's also... One of my kind of people I look to in this well-structured monolith world, and he's got a quote that's attributed to him that says, if you can't build a well-structured monolith, what makes you think you can build a well-structured set of microservices? And the last thing you want when you're building microservices is a distributed monolith, which is where <laughs> a lot of people end up. They yeah. end up with, you know, 40 microservice calls to get one thing done. And you're like, well, you now have the worst of all worlds. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's where we wound up. I mean, we we completely rewrote it from the bottom up, but that's I think the, that's where we wound up. It's a you know distributed systems are hard. I mean, it's it's a non-trivial thing to deal with. So yeah, that's that's where I'm at. Well structured monolith first, and if you want microservices, there's a clear path to getting there. But you 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 prove out the coupling and cohesion in your software in a monolith first before you go throwing it across a network boundary. Yeah. 
Makes sense. Well, uh, I'm, I'm probably going to push you to come back on Ruby Rogues and we can talk more deeply about this. Cool. So uh, I guess the only thing we have left is uh, picks. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Picks. So... Um, definitely check out the Kotlin programming language, especially if anybody's threatening you with Java development. Um, it takes the edge off of it. Um, if you haven't looked into a functional programming language, definitely recommend at least starting to dabble in that one of those languages. I chose Haskell because I was like, I want to learn functional programming. And here's the IO monad, and I'm going to learn functional programming because the compiler forces you to. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you look at languages like Elixir, we're seeing this movement towards more functional ways of programming, especially with concurrency and you know multiprocessors and multi-cores. Um, and it's changed the way I write software. I think my software is a lot more loosely coupled and highly cohesive because I think of functions first. Um, but Haskell is not for everybody. So there's you know I think plenty of other languages. Elixir being one of them for the Ruby community. If you're looking into um, doing that. And then, you know, if you're, you're someone's threatening you with microservices, mm-hmm. pick up a book called, I think it's called building microservices from a guy named Sam Newman. He used to work at ThoughtWorks. I think he's independent now. Um, a really great, even handed, here are the pros and cons of microservices. You make your own decision kind of book. Um, I really believe it should be the must have read this book and be this tall before riding the microservices ride. Um, in the industry, I think it will just cut off a lot of problems we're seeing. But it's a great book, very quick read. I think it's maybe 150 or 200 pages long. Um, and those are some of the things I've been playing with these days. Awesome. Um, well, I'm going to jump in here with a few picks of my own. Um, and now I've been playing with all kinds of stuff lately. Um, I went to CES, and now everybody wants to send me review units of their stuff. So um, I've been playing with some of them. I'm going to be putting the reviews up on uh, YouTube. So keep an eye on that. That's at devchat.tv slash YouTube. Um, but uh, yeah, a few of the things that I've, I've also been playing with, and these are things that I bought for myself. Um, I, I'm totally going to go the food route. Um, so the first one is uh, it's a master-built smoker I got for Christmas. Um, now I told my wife to go buy it on Black Friday, and she did. So... <laughs> It wasn't exactly a, a surprise, but um, yeah, I made some ribs in it uh, a couple of weeks ago. So, so good. Went and got some more ribs. I've been out of town the last two weeks. Um, but yeah, so just amazingly good. So um, really digging that. Um, I also just love my slow cooker. So if you're 
if you're slow cooker, crock pot, whatever you want to call it. Um, terrific stuff. And then um, you mentioned functional programming. And so I'm also going to just uh, throw out a pick for that. I'm working on a podcast and um, I've decided to call it Elixir Mix. And yes, I know that Mix is the utility for Elixir. Um, so, so that's going to bother some people. I just know it. But I like the name. It rolls off the tongue. And so I stuck with it anyway. Um, but yeah. So um, if you're interested in a podcast about Elixir, uh, keep an eye out. It's probably going to come out about two, three weeks after this episode comes out. So um, yeah, keep an eye out for that stuff. Um, and Mike, if people want to see what you're blogging about or thinking about or working on these days, where do they go? Twitter's probably the best place. So my Twitter handle is M-I-K-E-G-E-H-A-R-D. D is in dog. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you for coming. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up and we will catch everyone next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.